This is not unlike during the week when you clean up after me all week, is it really? There's really no difference. You thought you had to dance. It's like, oh, Bruzek did that again. Oh, no. Okay, so it's turned on, ready to go? All right, so see, this is very easy. Can you see? Law eye. See that cranky eye? Judgment eye. Squinted out. This is a little like when your mother looked at you and said, what were you thinking, right? And then look at this. See how calm that is? I love you, I want to be your friend, come home, be quiet, life's good, you're mine. So you regularly have, way back in art, um, this dual thing. The supper can save you or it can kill you. Jesus wants to be your friend, but if you make him judge you as a goat on the last day, you know, so, so there you go. I just wanted to show you that that, you know, that exists and, and is roundabout. Okay, what's the next thing? Oh, this is fun. Um, uh, I think I saw this somewhere in France. This is the most glorious. So someday when you have $10,000 enough to do, uh, after you put in the windows and fix the lights and do some other stuff, okay, uh, this is the most glorious, you know, uh, way of, and, and you see processional, uh, it's a processional cross that was, becomes, you know, doctrine. And so you have the lies of Jesus put in the back, and then the other side you have this great, you know, it's, it's cloisoned, this enameled, beautiful thing. And, you know, they weren't so shy as to, you know, wrap a few leaves around it. Um, I can't, it was in the spring I was there, but I can't remember exactly what that was for. But just the glory of when, when, once people get tuned into beauty and they start to do things, it just sort of manifests, and it, it can go for generations, and that's fantastic. Our problem is not that we have too much beauty. Our problem is that we have too little. Our problem is not that we have too much quiet, or that you're in church too long. Our problem is that we have too little. You know, we need the things that will soothe our soul. It's, I mean, right there in Paul today, he says, I discipline my instincts. You know, I, I don't want to get up and run, but I get up and run, because that's what Jesus asks. It goes through everything. So that was just for fun. What's the next thing? Ah, yes, the Stations of the Cross. Doubtless you will say to me, um, you know, isn't that Catholic? Well, you know, I mean... If you have a small C, it's Catholic. The Stations of the Cross, there are Lutheran churches that have them roundabout. You know, we just haven't gotten there, and it's not an issue right now because there's not money. But basically, the Stations of the Cross are simply, you know, different. It's meditations on the different parts of Christ's passion. It's a completely acceptable and very helpful thing because, as I tried to say to you in the sermon this morning, gratitude fails because memory fails. If you remember, then you're grateful. You know, you get cranky at your parents, and, but you forget how much they supported you, how much they loved you, how they bailed you out when you did stupid things. You get cranky at your kids, but you forget the joy that they brought to you and the innocence and how they, you know, help, helped you grow and, and all of that. It's the, same, it's the same for all these things. Memory is what makes us gr- grateful for, um, and I can tell you what Monday, Thursday, if Nelson lets me preach, I know what the sermon's going to be. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed, gave thanks. How do you put those two things together? That on the night he's betrayed, he gives thanks. How can you be grateful for betrayal? You know, how does that work? So there it is. Anyway, um, you'll notice then, um, body on the cross, and you know, someday, someday, in the cloisters up and down, who knows? Go to the next thing, John. And then Mr. Lee asked me about a tabernacle, and this is making a bit of a resurgence in the Lutheran Church, although there's going to be a fist fight over this if it happens. Um, so, and then, I don't know, I'm going to take a vacation to Florida. Uh, <laughs> or I'll go with the shites to Mexico. Here's the thing. 
So, so here's the deal, okay? This is, I'm going to give you a short <coughs> history lesson of why you have a tabernacle. First, <coughs> a tabernacle, you know, just means a room or a box. It's a container, okay? A, a tabernacle is a container. And, um, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, in a sense, you know, sat in the tabernacle. Here's, and I'm sure you know this if you have Catholic friends, the pastor goes to the altar, speaks the words of Christ. The words of Christ make bread and wine the body and blood of Jesus, okay? Sometimes, you know, when you have all of the shites go on vacation at once, you know, we're down about 30% in our attendance, okay? <laughs> so then what happens is, you know, what are we going to do with all the rest of the, the, the bread and wine that's been consecrated? Okay, Catholics, the wine, they don't consecrate as much because of the priest and, you know, not the people receiving it. That's a different issue. But they have this real question they do about what to do with the body of Christ that's now been consecrated. It's there on the altar. What are you going to do with it? Okay, the answer for a very, very long time has been you save it, respect it, and use it as the first thing the next time you celebrate the supper, or take it out to the sick. Okay. Everybody was fine with that until a couple of things happened in church history, which was, one was, you get, um, for example, a Corpus Christi parade, where you parade the host, for example, or adore the host, but never eat. And then all the superstitions that come along with that. And I'm being very careful here. I'm actually talking about the superstitions and not the reverences of what happened. Um, so you'll have things like, so then Lutherans react to that. And they say, um, well, as soon as we're done, there's no more supper. And you get some very grievous things like, you know, um, there's this spurious Luther quote, which anybody who's ever argued this to me has never been able to point to. So I think it's, it's fake. Um, unless somebody shows me it's a fake, and where they quote Luther saying, you can take the elements and throw them out to the pigs after the... I can't, he never would have said it unless you can show it to me in the Latin or the German. He never said it. But guys will quote that all the time, like you know some other Luther quotes that are around, but nobody has a text for them. It's a made-up thing, unless somebody shows me different. Um, here's the thing. Luther was very reverent, and those things were... those At the very least, the bare minimum, what that can be is a piece of bread that held the body of Christ that hung on the cross, how would you treat that? You'd treat that like a piece of bread that was put to the most holy possible use. So what are you going to do? What are you, what are you going to do now? Catholics have said, you make a tabernacle. This is actually a tabernacle at the Chiara Center where I was a chaplain for um, a Lutheran gathering, and they let us use the church. You can see that it's built like the Ark of the Covenant. So they're clearly trying to make the Old Testament and New Testament connection. The angels are over the top, the doors open, and what simply happens is the priest would take whatever body of Christ is left, puts it inside, locks the door so that nobody fiddles with it, and often there's then a light. They turn on a light or a candle burns to tell you the lights are on, he's home, right? He's there. And then often you'll see people go by and you'll see them genuflect. Why do they genuflect? Because Jesus is there. It makes complete sense if you go with this. Um, there can be aberrations and then there can be reactions and then people get really caught in what they believe and then they kind of point fingers and they get really cranky. What's the way out if you're me? Let's play You Be Me, my favorite game. You Be Me. Well, Mexico is one possibility. 
Get across the border, baby. That's exactly right. Amen. There you go. One possibility is to flee. Um, Yes, the other possibility is to eat it all. If you go, we just did on new members on Saturday, Exodus 12, at the Passover, there's a clear instruction. At the Passover, you eat everything. If you don't have enough people in your family to eat everything, you go get the next door neighbors and you eat everything. If you still can't eat everything, you have to burn it. But you can't leave it lying around as if it was nothing. So when Jesus comes to Monday, Thursday, and he says, this is the new covenant, this is the new Passover, in my blood... You know, you're thinking back, wow, this is bigger than the old Passover. In the old Passover, they ate everything. So the way that we solve the issue, so not to lead anybody into doubt, not to have a fist fight, not to worry anybody, to be completely reverent, is we just eat and drink everything. Now, safety tip for all of you. Some of you will notice, especially if you come to Eucharist in the morning, we can't predict in the morning if there'll be 20 of you or 50 of you. morning Eucharist at 740, you're all welcome. We would love to have you. It's a glorious, glorious start to your day. If you're ever around at 740, please come. It's always between 20 and 50. Never gets below 20, never gets over 50. So we put out enough hosts for all of that. If only 30 people show up, some of you notice, what have I been doing to you lately? Giving you an extra host. So sometimes you get two hosts, which some of you have interpreted as me thinking you're twice as bad a sinner as you used to be. (laughs) This, of course, is not the case. All this means is it's complete expediency, um, which is one has to, one is instructed to take, eat, take, drink. And there's not a great reason for um, only the pastors to be doing that because it's given to the community. The great reason for, for the celebrant doing er, finishing everything is basically to make sure everything is finished. So it, it's good practice, and you'll notice that we always, even like this morning, Pastor Nelson um, is the celebrant, so we, honoring him as the celebrant, we leave the last sip for him. We leave the last host for him. He's in charge. We all take our orders from him. He's in charge this morning. He's wearing the chasuble. He's the celebrant. We all work for him today at the altar. Um... But, you know, that doesn't mean that I, should we pause while I eat 25 hosts? I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it's nothing wrong with it. And actually, that's what we did in the past. But if you, so my point is, if you're the last table, maybe even the last 50, and you suddenly have two hosts, it simply means we need to eat all this. There's not as many of us. You can help us out just a little bit by doing this. The other thing is, is we'd rather have a bit too much than a bit too little, because if there's a bit too little, then we have to pause bring elements again, and consecrate, which is fine, but it just interrupts the flow of the service. It's another way of of doing it. But what we try to do is just have a bit too much, and then, so if we ask you to help us, that's the reason we're asking to help us. And that will avoid the conversation about the tabernacle, although in another day, when we're talking about the Eucharist, it's a very live subject, because Jesus does not say, this is my body, and then it's not my body. And that's a real theological question. Once the word comes to the element, does the word stop going to the element? It's a live theological conversation. Catholics would say no, and so they have a tabernacle. Lutherans, in reaction to that, have said yes, and there is some um, evidence. Luther says the supper ends when the priest drinks the last drop from the chalice. The problem is, is that's pretty clear 
but it doesn't actually say the presence ends if you haven't eaten and drunk everything. So, you know, how you, how you do that. And we have to be careful. You know, Lutherans by nature are reactive. We are a reactive group. That is our history. We were born in rebellion, honest rebellion, against real evils. But nevertheless, we were born in rebellion. The problem is, is that pastors especially, but people often, you know, they mistake themselves for Luther. They, they want to be a rebel too. He was a Luther, so I am a... If you read some of the stuff that Luther wrote about people and even to kings and popes, you wouldn't... I mean, the stuff, the vulgarities with which he kind of carries on against people. And sometimes you get pastors who go out and do that and you're like, idiot, you're not Luther and it's not the 16th century. And this is not going to help anybody, okay? But, but, but parishioners, I don't know if you ever noticed, can be idiots too. It can't, it goes all directions, you know. You didn't laugh at that, that's very interesting about you. <laughs> Okay, that's fine. So, you know, you have real, real issues. So the first thing I ever say to the vicar's not here today, is he vicar here? My first words to every vicar are, you don't get out of trouble, you stay out of trouble. That's the very, I mean, that's just, that's the first thing I'd say to any vicar. You don't get out of trouble, you stay out of trouble. Consuming everything keeps you out of trouble until the time when we decide what we think about that Eucharistic doctrine which then might, as some Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, gaining Atlanta, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, I actually don't know. I'm just teasing. I don't know if he has one, but I do know that there are other. I do know there are other Luther churches, Missouri Synod churches that have a tabernacle. And if you ask them why they do that, they say the body of Christ is in there, and we respect that and reverence that. So, anyway, that's the long and the short about that. I don't see one on our horizon. We'd have to do an awful lot of work, and then we'd have to decide that was the direction we were. We'd have to decide that's the doctrine we believe, and we'd have to decide that's the direction that we're going, and then we'd have to work with that. Even just consuming the elements. I talked about that for four years before we did it, and the only reason we started is we had a guest professor here from one of the seminaries who said, what's the matter with you people? Why don't you eat and drink everything? And then a bunch of the people who were at that seminar came to me and said, what's the matter with you? Why don't we eat and drink everything? Which then I took as a sign of, okay, you're ready to eat and drink everything. And then, of course, what happened? There's always some people who are stunned by, why are we eating and drinking everything? I'm like, we've been talking about this for four years. If you don't show up, I can't stop. This is what I'm supposed to do, okay? And I'm supposed to push you, as I told you before, as hard as I can push you. And then it's the next guy's problem if he's going to step on the brakes or the accelerator. For me, now, with you, it's all accelerator all the time, right? Because there's so much to do, and our world is so broken, and you need so much, and, you know... This is so good. Make sense? So maybe a tabernacle, maybe not. Don't get hives when you see one. You know, uh, you know and, and, if you, and don't get hives if you don't. You know, I mean, it's the way through, the cleanest way through is to eat and drink everything. So if you get an extra sip from the chalice uh, or if you get a couple of hosts, just know that's what we're doing. Okay, make sense? Okay, good. So that was a very helpful question for Mr. Lee, wherever you happen to be today. There you are, Mr. Lee. Thank you very much. Um, okay, next thing. Ah. Okay, how did we get an icon in the sanctuary? Um, I didn't start that way. Actually, I started with this. This is a bronze I found in Rome. If you walk down the Spanish steps, go four blocks, turn right, and then turn left. There's a church that I can't remember the name of, but if you walk in... This is on a pole, very interesting, on a pole next to the altar. Now, just a little pause. You'll notice there's no crossbar. 
Why is it just on a pole? What are they trying to tell you? You see this? Now, what I mean is, do you see there's a pole here? Very odd, there's no crossbar. Why is it just on a pole? Somebody give me a text, a text. You're dead without a text. Exactly. Thank you very much. As Jesus said, oh, you know, Jesus has this long thing in John 3, I think. Just as Moses raised the snake in the wilderness, and people looked to it. Remember, the, the snakes came. Everybody's crabby. So what did they do? Jesus, I mean, the text says, he lifted up the fence. He lifted up. It is very interesting Hebrew stuff there. He, it's like there's this fence around him, and God sort of lifted it up, and all the evil came rushing in. And the first evil was snakes on their bellies. Do, 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 right at him. Starts biting everybody, and everybody dies. Do you remember this? And then they say, what in the world is going on? We're the chosen people. And they're like, yeah, well, you're not acting like it. So then... They said, what are we going to do? You know, everybody's dying, and this is a miserable way. You know, first our fear of snakes, and then being, do you watch the exterminator? And then they're, they're you know, he's, they're biting them, and they're just fiery, the fiery serpents, you know. And people are dying, and all around, and you don't know which way. It's like living in a horror movie. So they put this brass snake on a pole, and then John's gospel says, just as that brass snake was raised on a pole, so Jesus will be raised up, and the ultimate glory is when everybody turns to look at him. His glory is when he draws all eyes to him, like the snake in the wilderness, and that's how you get saved. Fascinating stuff, right? Somebody is thinking that, and, you know, just for fun, this is the fun part. It was Jan last week who made the great observation that she'd seen, you know, in Paraguay. She goes on this mission trip, she goes in a church, and there's the blood splur- splur- spurting out, you know, onto people, you know, onto the altar, into the chalice, you'll start to see these things all around. Well, here's the thing. That's very uncommon, not to have a crossbeam, but very biblical. So anyway, this is where we started. Um, I started with the bronze and started, um, that's when I started to get to know artists and what it's like to work with artists. And, you know, again, you know, that we had the same conversation. We thought, how much is that going to be? A million dollars. It's always a million dollars. Everything's a million. How much is that going to be? A hundred thousand dollars. You're just like, you know, I'm just a guy. <laughs> it's a church. We're on a budget. How much will that be? That's a hundred thousand dollars. You know, so uh, the other thing is it was heavy um, and it was hard to find and you couldn't be guaranteed what you get. And this was, you know, some things, you know, like the pews. We actually went to a convent. We drove to a convent in Wisconsin and we saw almost exactly the pews we were going to get. I mean, we looked all around Chicago. We finally went to a place that was the closest place. We took a day trip and went up there. And you can look at them and say, that's going to work. We've seen it now. That's going to work. Things like the altar. Now, the font, we did see. So we saw the font. We go, that, that we know will work. But we didn't know it about the marble burst. We didn't know it about the altar platform. We didn't know it about the, the, uh, the crucifix. We didn't know it about the altar. We didn't know it about the back altar. I mean, talking about lying awake at night, because these things cost, you know, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, and you're like, yeah, go ahead and do that. And you know, if it doesn't work, what? Grave humiliation and no going back. It's not like I can come to you and say, yeah, we spent uh, forty thousand dollars on the altar and we really screwed that up. Could we take the door offering this week for the new altar? <laughs> and you just can't use. So anyway, we started with the bronze because we were trying to get a bit more 3D, and you got to have something big that holds the room, okay? And we were trying to, 
we're trying to get a range of things from, you know, from metalwork to stonework to wood, we're, to, to, to tapestries. We're trying to get a range of things that would kind of make all your senses pop. That's kind of where we started. And probably for you know, six months, this is what I tracked down. Um, as an aside, I found another one in Paris at a, in a little place, and I, I couldn't figure out the slide really quickly on Friday. But we had a couple of false starts with that, and so we kind of kept going. Go next. I'm not sure exactly what's there. Okay, and then we thought to ourselves, here's the thing. Iconic things have a, icons have a long tradition in the church, but they're lost a little bit in the West, and they're lost a little bit, especially among Lutherans. And we started to ask the question, shouldn't that be part of our history? It's, it's everywhere, throughout all centuries. It is, it, I mean, it's us. These are our people. If really we're Lutherans and we say... You know, we stand in the line of St. Peter and St. Paul. We stand in the line of Tertullian and Irenaeus. It's, the, Augustine, he belongs to us. Chrysostom, that's our guys. Ambrose, he's our guy. Cyprian, those guys are our guys. Even, you know, Aquinas, when he gets it right, Bonaventure, those are our guys. If we really believe that, then why do all the things that they give us, do we say, oh, it's too Catholic, or that's not us, or we never had that before, or my confirmation pastor didn't, or all the other things about, or why do you do that because I don't like that, which is just about the worst reason you can give for anything in the church. You know, I don't like that because guess what? There's 150 of you here today, and you all like something different. Could you hold the pesto? I'd like some mustard here. Have you got A1 sauce? I like my soup hot, not cold. I like my soup cold, not hot. You see how difficult this is? And then you're spending a couple of million dollars to do that, and the stakes shoot way, way up, you know, and it can just go wrong in a zillion ways. Why make it go wrong? Try to make it go right. So here's the thing. We said, why not try an iconic tradition? Now, this particular icon is from the east. Um, There's sort of an eastern, I mean, just draw a line through Jerusalem. Just go right and left on the map, okay? East and west. What happens is, is that the Eastern icons have a more severe and ascetic look to them. You, can you just see from this one? This wasn't the, this wasn't, the, this isn't the most severe, but you can see, how does that look different from the icon we have? Can you see a few things? There's a bit more blood and you got a bit of a spurt. Yes, a little bit of a spurt. So that's mid-range blood probably. What else have you got? He does hang lower. What else have you got? He does look dead, dead, dead. That's exactly right. And you can go from dead clear into mangled. And actually, artwork in the West, there's a period from, you know, 1300 to 1600 where you can barely look at it. I mean, it is, you're like, whoa, that is uh, Eisenheim altarpiece. Have you ever seen that? Where Jesus, his whole body is filled with thorns from the beatings. I mean, you get up close to it and you're just, it's, it's you know, kind of sickens you, actually. Um, you t- for any human being first, but then, you know, you, that, that's Christ. You just, you just kind of... Uh, anything else you got cooking there? Very geometric or flat. Can I go flat? You know, you don't have it. There's no sort of depth there. It is a very sort of flat representation. Anything else? La- yeah, that's a lack of perspective. There's an artist talking right there. That's the woman who does your bulletins. Aren't they nice? Yes, they are very nice. She's a nice woman. Um, so basically then we said, well, and, and this is, this is kind of the gentlest of the Eastern side. It's, 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 you got to work with it. And if you're not used to it, it can sort of get after you. Okay. Try the next thing. This is, um, from Florence. This is considered to be, uh, so we're casting around. What do we do? This is considered to be the greatest 
uh, Renaissance icons. This, is, this icon is the Cimabue icon. It's in Florence. It's considered to be, you know, when Western iconography hit its peak, this is the one. And this one is um, copied everywhere. And just so you know, or I should probably say it is written, one of the things about iconography is it's not always about you figuring something out. It's very often about you copying a master. So just as an aside, um, actually, we need to have Mel Tem out to talk to us, and maybe we'll do that during Lent. Mel Tem was our iconographer. Um, Mel Tem Akhtos, who is a Turk, grew up Muslim, lived above a Greek Orthodox monastery, heard the prayers of the monks each day, and said, their prayers were better than my prayers. She converts to Christianity. She comes to America. She studies iconography in Chicago. Um, I went on a retreat in the city in Bridgeport to a monastery, a silent retreat for a couple of days. But I was going um, each day to the offices and to the mass. And above their altar, lo and behold, they have a copy of this. And so I wrote back to them. This is weird because since you can't talk, you've got to do something else. So I wrote back later and said, you know, how about this? And um, they sort of put me onto the guy who did that. And then when I was looking at some other stuff that he'd done in Chicago... There were other icons in there that had a softer sense even. And I asked the, um, uh, the mother superior, you know, who did this? And she gave me Meltem's name. And lo and behold, she's in Chicago. Well, that suddenly cuts out, you know, $40,000 in shipping from Europe. I mean, you start to think about all these things like what's that going to be and how does that work and how soon can it be done? And do you really want to go spend tens of thousands of dollars on something that you uh, have never seen and you've never met the person? There's just the, the level of trust that artists um, require uh, is really sometimes beyond my faith in artists. So um, anyway, this was there was one model like this, and um, you know when you go to Florence next time, check it out. Uh, click to the next one. And so um, now here's just an aside. Um, this is some of Meltem's more modern things, um, and you can see you know that's a very Western, and that is a very 21st century kind of look, right? What do you see that's different about that as opposed to what you normally see in, if you know any mother and child icons anywhere? What do you notice that's different? Anything? She is looking straight at you, but actually any good icon, well, I shouldn't say that. That's too harsh. Regularly, you will see in icons, they're painted in a perspective so that they, the eyes follow you. The other thing is, is icons are often hung on a tilt um, because when you're sitting, your perspective changes. And if it's hung straight up and down, what happens? It looks over your head. So you hang it on a tilt so when you're sitting and you look up, you're still eye to eye. Make sense? So that's the reason it's on a tilt. Um, um, there was somebody who came in and said, you know, your icon's tilting. I'm like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> 13 degrees. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, usually between something like 6 and 14 is where, it's, you know, you get it. Ours tilts quite a lot. It does tilt quite a lot, but there's a whole other story behind that. Anyway, um, one is, and she has, that's a very intense look in her eyes. Like, that's the Holy Mother coming at you, right? All right, what else do you see? Anything else you notice? You know what? It's hard for you to see, but you're, that is a great observation. You're a right Unless you're really close, you can't see it. So that was actually a great observation. It's just here with a red, red circle. But it's not brighter. So a point taken. Thank you very much. What else do you notice? Anything else? 
yeah, she's not, she doesn't look very Jewish. You know, I don't know if you have, you know, Jewish friends, but, you know, whenever you see Jesus High School photograph and he's got blue eyes. In fact, that is, just so you know, and this will ruin my pastoral care for you, but whenever people say to me, Jesus appeared to me in a dream, my first question I always say is, what color were his eyes? When people say blue, I'm like, I didn't pick them. I mean, that was, you know. So, uh, yeah, she looks a bit, uh, she's a bit white bread. But the thing is, is, but now I'm going to, in defense, how are you going to defend the black Madonna of Guadalupe? Shites, that's right up your ballgame right here. Yeah, you're here. What do you do when you have an African-American Madonna? What do you do with that? And isn't it interesting? It's the Poles who, who venerate the black icon of Guadalupe, is it not? I've always been trying to put that together in my head. And so this is just such an interesting thing. But you will see, I mean, so in one sense, she's not a Jewess. In another sense, it's very common what people are trying to, I mean, there, about 20 years ago, there was this whole kick up because there was a bunch of black Jesuses tearing around in artwork. And people were freaking out over it. You know, in a sense, there's the things that can go wrong in another sense, there are things that can go right. For example, you know, there's a coin flip possibility that St. Augustine was a black man. He was an African. So there's a chance, you know, that just like flips everybody out because Augustine is one of the great Western, he's one of the four doctors of the church in the Western church, right? Chrysostom, Ambrose, um, Augustine, help me. Okay, you, uh, come on. The four great doctors of the Western Church, I'll, it'll come to me. There's four in the East as well. Um, so one just has to know what you're doing when you look at it. You can say she doesn't look like a Jew. In the other sense, in the other hand, you can say, okay, we'd have to ask ourselves, why is that? She's got quite rosy cheeks, actually, for a Madonna. Uh, what else have you got going on there? Yeah, she's wearing, she's only wearing blue, which is, and they're nice blues too. They're vibrant. Right, which is for some centuries now been her color. Mary Lou, there is can be some red and some blue. Um, I don't I don't see any red on this one, but um, she often does have some linings, right? So you do see that. Yes, please. That's right. Right. So she gets the most expensive paint, and she's the queen of heaven. And partly you know that because she's wearing little tiny stars, right? Of course, she's the queen of heaven. It's in Revelation. I mean, it's in the text. It's not like people make this stuff up. I mean, if you read Revelation, there is this, you know, and has long been interpreted as Mary, Queen of Heaven. Um, go ahead. Anything else? Right. Good. Right. And and that's and you even go all the way back to you remember Lydia in the Bible was a, a dyer of what's the color for Lydia? She was a purple, and purple was the most expensive. And the Phoenicians, the Lebanese, were, were world famous because they had the best purple dyes. That's why they were, and so it was a big deal that she was a purple dye person. Isn't that great? Um, anything else? Jesus, is he looks like he's going through adolescence. <laughs> Mr. Ferrer. That's exactly right. And here's the thing. You get double weight because you're the only guy with a bow tie in here, and you are a good-looking guy, man. That is a good look. Bring it back, man. You are bringing sexy back. That's what I've, I've heard that. <laughs> Exactly right. You bumped me right there. That's exactly right. I know you and Justin got the same birth. Don't let any of these people freak you out. You do what you want. 
Tell your parents I said that and then bring them in and we'll talk, okay? All right, good. <laughs> he does look older, yeah, okay. And um, you'll notice that his hand reaches out, but he's also got his hand almost in the sign of the first two letters of his first name. <coughs> the X is <coughs> and the R is R, -R as in Christos, right? So there he is, it begins to form into his hand. Got some angels, right? Um, but anyway, this seemed a bit modern for us. You would have to, um, so first we go iconographic, then we don't go hard-edged Eastern iconographic, but then we say you can err on the other side and get too modern, and then you're saying, like, sort of, what is that? Um, so we ended up, go ahead and kick ahead, with that. Um, and this is, you know, we'll have Mel Tim in. Maybe we'll do this in the, in, during Lent. Is, we want to get the lighting just so, and we haven't quite finished the lighting. We want to get it just so for when we do this, because... It's remarkable, all the stuff that pops out. Um, this was painted, actually. This is written it's a, it, as a copy of a previous work. On the death of her father, she wrote an icon about this big that you, if you go to Loyola Chapel, when Loyola Chapel in Chicago was redone, she had uh, commissioned for several pieces in the chapel. And if you haven't been in, it is unbelievable. I mean, uh, and there were different people working on it, but she had some major pieces done, including the tabernacle, which she flew to China to supervise um, the enameling. Fascinating. She spent about a month in China working with it because it was um, cheapest and, frankly, very, very well done. Anyway, so on the, on the death of her father, with whom she was very close, she painted this icon and gave it to Loyola. And then as we're casting around, you know, this again is a great nervousness. Do you say, create something from scratch? Or do you say, you know, we'll have one of those long tradition in the church of it's more common to write an icon that's been written already. So we said, you know, would you, have, would you take a chance on making this, you know, very big to hold the space? Um, just as a by the by, you know, and just as, it's just good for you to know. Um, this was paid um, wholly by some donors. And I'll just tell you, I mean, this is how we play in the church, which is there were some people who got together whose names are not known who paid for this icon. Here's a, here, I just want you to, this is very important for you to understand. We only let people do that when they already come to church, they already tithe, they already made a capital campaign commitment, and then wanted to do more. So you get it? So I'm only going to listen to you about I wish we could have one of these if you already give 10%, if you already played along with the community and made a capital campaign gift, and then if you want to do some more, then if you come to me and say, I have money falling out of my pockets and I don't know what to do with it, I say, I'm your guy. <laughs> I really, I'm, I'm the guy who can help you with this. Um, and I, you know, I did approach some people who I, I thought, who I knew were in that situation. But this was, so sometimes people say, well, isn't this a bit extravagant for our space? The answer is, actually, this was a gift outside the budget from um, some folks who are very interested. And that, that kind of joy, you know, of things that were, there were several things that are inside like that. You know, that kind of joy that people sort of give that as a gift, so, you know, here it is and you're free. Um, it's very, very nice. Now, Mr. Lee. Yes, please. Ah, I have not started on my lesson yet, Mr. Mueller. This is, these are just the warm-ups. I'm not kidding you. This was just the warm-up slides for the side. So, Mr. Lee. Yeah, it's written because, you speak of it as being written because in the church, 
people understand looking at this icon as same as looking at a page of scripture. So this is the crucifixion. If I held up, you know, Matthew, the end of Matthew's gospel, and I held up this icon, people in traditions of icon would say, oh, I could read that or I could read that. So they understand, and I'm going to push you all the way out to your Lutheran sensitive point, they would understand icons to be a means of grace. I think I do too. Because they tell the story. What, else, what is the difference between me and saying to you, Larry, Jesus died to save you, and read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and you looking at that. What's the difference? The difference is very thin, if indistinguishable. It at least has to be a question about whether... And so people, I mean, there's a whole liturgy for writing an icon. You, you dress, you prepare, you pray, you paint, you blow on the paint. And there's a sense from some iconographers of, in, of inspiriting the paint. And you start all over again. It is this very, very, just the way, you know, people, when they copied scriptures by hand, they went to a special room. They dressed in a particular way. They said a particular liturgy, and they wrote. And if they made mistakes, they had to start over, right? That's how we got the scriptures. It's a very, we know how the process worked exactly because they didn't have printing presses. That's what they did. There were people who wrote them out. So anyway, people speak of the icon as being written. Okay, now the Nelson baby has to be baptized, that little pagan. And if we don't go now, that'll be the end of that child. That, that child should not go another 22 minutes without baptism. So um, anyway, that really was just supposed to be a warm-up. But all of that is questions that have sort of been generated. So it's always easier if you ask your questions. We'll sort of keep going next week. There's, um, we will try to, what, here's what I'm going to do next week. I'm going to try to wrap up the altar and the icon, at least we may go back to the icon another day. But actually, I want you to think about that, look at it when you see it, and what do you find in it that is remarkable, not remarkable, interesting, not interesting, why do we do this, why didn't we do that? All sorts of choices had to be made in how that was going to be painted. So we want to talk about the altar, the icon, and the connection between them, because they're meant to be one piece, Jesus from the cross on his altar for you. You can't get better gospel than that, okay? All right, let's pray. Thanks.